Am I on? Yeah, I am. <laughs> I have had many opportunities to minister to my king, to people in prison and jail, but I've never been asked to deliver a message to people in a different kind of prison. <laughs> the prison of life started many years ago for me uh, through an organization called the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship. We started going to the King County Jail. It had a chaplain in those days. And once a week we'd go in and minister to the guys who were there arrested for one thing or another or serving short sentences. The maximum sentence is 12 months. So it was a lot of turnover. And uh, started out with six or seven men and that dwindled down to two. Myself and my friend Vern Harrelson, who's no longer witty and with us, but uh, in heaven with the Lord Jesus. And Vern is a man of God, but he was utterly incapable of standing in front of a group and talking about anything. So it fell to me to give the message. And the amazing thing, and part of my testimony is, that God would give me a message every week, a different message. And that went on for a long time. In 2006, my life changed in that regard. We, we had moved out into the country and it was no longer possible to drive all the way into Seattle on Monday night. And I joined an organization called the Fisherman's Union. It's a nonprofit corporation consisting of about nine men who go to the prison at Monroe, Washington on a weekly basis. And two members of this congregation, Paul Weston and Todd Evans, are members of that organization. Our motto is, we hook them and God cleans them. <laughs> this, this division of the prison is a very unusual place. It's the place where our Department of Corrections sends all of the inmates who can't seem to get along in the regular general population for a variety of reasons. Many of them are due to mental illness, drug addiction, and so forth. To give you an example of that, one of our men, Lee Many, uh, is qualified with the training experience to be able to do it. He's able to go into the lockdown unit and minister one-on-one -on -one in the cells for the prisoners who cannot be allowed out into the general population. And he told me just last week that, you know, last week, John, uh, I met Jesus and Satan the same week. Jesus was upstairs and Satan was downstairs. These are men who believe what they're saying. A, a little while back, I was delivering my turn, and we have nine of us, so it's about once a quarter I get to preach now. My message was on the destruction of strongholds. And I was talking about the deliverance that people, men can have from the strongholds of unforgiveness, of despair, and the feeling that no one loves them. Serious guilt. And they all have reasons to be guilty, feel guilty. And after the message, one of the men came up to me and said, you know, 
I've never been able to forgive my brother who got me into the activity that resulted in me coming to prison. And I never could believe until now that God would forgive me for what I did to those victims. He didn't tell me what he did, and I, I don't need to know that. But that's been my ministry, to help people who are in struggles with guilt and so forth. This message tonight has to do with fear. And uh, it was my turn to preach at the prison, and I got the schedule mixed up. I showed up, and they said, well, you're on tonight, John. I said, I am? <laughs> I had thought about it and had a general idea of what I wanted to talk about, but I didn't do my usual preparation as a lawyer, you know, get your notes and citations and everything set. And uh, so nothing to do but to go for it, so I got up and delivered the message anyway. And I feel like that God wants me to share that beyond those men. So you have it tonight. First thing I will do tonight, and I'm talking about transformation. Transformation by a renewal of the mind. First, I want to take you on a journey through what the scripture has to say about this search for truth. What he wants you to have in the process. And the spiritual forces working against that that don't want you to have it. Secondly, I want to share my own experience from my life in an area of how the Lord God delivered me from an irrational, uncontrollable fear. And third, my suggestions as to how you might discover for yourself in your area of obstacles and barriers to a total relationship with him, how you can be delivered from that as well. Could I have the first screen, please? Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul, the Apostle Paul left us these words, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now I ask you, who wouldn't want that happen? I mean, really. How many can say to themselves truthfully, this has been my experience? And if not, why not? Didn't God make this clear enough? Isn't my understanding of what he's saying enough? Have you searched for these things so that he can provide them to you? Could I have the next screen? The Apostle Paul also wrote, But as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, 
the deep things of God. Next word. Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, what are these things of God? Before we can understand what God's trying to say to us in the Spirit, we at least, at least begin by looking at the words. In the uh, Webster's Encyclopedic Unabridged Dictionary of the English Language, there are 21 definitions of thing. Number three is most pertinent. An abstract quality or entity that which is or may become an object of thought, whether material or ideal, animate or inanimate, actual, possible, or imaginary. Notice the colon. I didn't put that there. Which means what's about to follow is the result of what's been stated before. The things of the spirit. Science has struggled mightily to find physical evidence of the unconscious mind or the conscious mind. They can't find a cell, a nerve, a piece of protoplasm, anything you could put in a micro, under a microscope and look at it and say, this is consciousness. It's not material. But it's undeniable that it's there. Many very bright men who just choose not to believe or refuse to struggle mightily to find some way to explain it otherwise, but they utterly fail philosophically and logically. So what are these things of the spirit, the things of God? The most obvious are the things he's promised us. He promised us salvation. John 3.16, probably the most quoted verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Fanny Crosby, one of the great hymn writers of all time, wrote in 1873, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. What else are we given as a thing of God that's a blessing that he wants us to have as the result of this transformation by the renewing of our minds? That's the objective here. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is a very essential part of relationship. Anytime you've offended someone, and you know it, and you go to them and apologize, and in sincerity they say, I forgive you. What does that do? That breaks down a barrier. That allows reconciliation. 
where there was judgment before and punishment of one kind or another, there is now love. When we offend God, something that ourselves, but when we realize that God alone forgives, that we turn to him. And that realization that in spite of what it was, he forgives. It's so freeing so that it's a real blessing of one of the things that God wants you to have, the ability to forgive and be forgiven by him and others. Another thing of God are the fruits of the Spirit. They're stated in Galatians chapter 4, verse 22 to 23, and you've heard them over and over again. Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And the Apostle Paul concludes it by saying, against which there is no law. Meaning, they are available to you if you allow God to work in you to bring them about. Another blessing and a thing of God is if you allow him to do it, he will direct, influence, and to his glory even control your relationships and even the words of your mouth. He's given us as a thing of his by his spirit power over evil spirits. Every night at the prison, we always open with a prayer and say, I bind Satan in the name of Jesus. And believe me, in this particular location, that's a very essential tool. Right, Paul? <laughs> he told the apostle Peter that whatever you bind on earth, is already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. But he has given us the privilege, a thing of his, to be able to exercise it to his honor and glory. Another thing of God is, is we're, we're joint heirs with Christ. We inherit, when we have accepted him and he's come into our lives, we inherit all of these things. There's grace, love, and here's another one that the Apostle Paul mentioned when he encountered the philosophers of his day. He said, I come not with persuasive arguments, logic, even though I can use them, but I speak to you only of Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I come with the power of God. He didn't say exactly what that was, but I think he meant that God's presence and influence in a given situation is powerful. Okay, if there are things of God, there must be things not of God. Things that this other person wants to deprive you of these things that God wants you to have. In uh, Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul also wrote, 
But I discern in my bodily members, in the sensitive appetites and wills of the flesh, a different law at war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin that dwells in my bodily organs in the sensitive appetites and, will, appetites and wills of the flesh. He makes this statement after he had encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and become a new creature in Christ Jesus. But he mentions this war that's going on. He goes into great length about how he fought against it, but it's still there. You can't have a war without two sides. If you only have one side, there's no contest, right? So if we're engaged in a war to prevent, on the one hand, the things of God coming into your life of transformation, who is this on the other side of this war? Well, I, I love this quote by a, a non-Christian philosopher, Nietzsche, who said, my memory says I did that. My pride says I never would have done that. And my pride wins every time. <laughs> That's the war, ladies and gentlemen. So what are the, some of the examples of this? Of course, the usual sensual desires, and there's no need to comment on those. But how about anger leading to bad choices? I generally don't get angry at people, but from time to time when I get frustrated because things won't line up just like I wanted them to, particular, particularly inanimate objects, that hammer won't hit the nail head, or too many things, and, and I find myself, that feeling of anger just rising up in me. Where's that coming from? My emotions, yeah, but is there something else? How about holding resentment against those who've wronged you in the past? I have to tell this story, small anecdote, but tell it for two reasons. One, because the person who brought it to my mind is here today. And secondly, it illustrates how subtle and how seemingly innocuous some of these experiences are that get embedded in our inner thoughts and have consequences down the road in the strangest of ways. My grandson, who is here, asked me one time, and there are two of them here, I can't remember which one asked me, pardon boys. <laughs> uh, did you play sports in high school? And I said, I played a little basketball. Were you any good? And I said, no. He said, why not? I said, well, I thought about it a minute. I guess it's because I was short, slow, and uncoordinated. <laughs> but my testimony of this little anecdote to illustrate how subtle these things are comes from that experience in basketball. I played on, the, on a junior varsity team in the ninth grade and for one reason or another decided not to play the next year, but decided again in the 11th grade to go out for basketball again 
made the junior varsity team. First game was a home game. I'm on the starting five. That was clearly one of the best guards he had, Coach Cox. And I scored the first two baskets. He pulled me out of the game. I never got back in the game or the rest of the season until what the sports guys would recognize as garbage time. In other words, you've either lost so bad there's no chance, or you're so far ahead there's no chance you will lose. And that really irritated me, and I didn't realize it was having an effect on me until many years later. My son was playing baseball in Little League, you know, and I'm over there like the parents on the side, rooting them on and everything. And right at a critical time in the game, the coach pulls him out. He hadn't done anything wrong. I got so angry. Didn't say anything because it was not my nature to be that obtrusive. But after it was over and I cooled down and I was praying about it, it suddenly came to me why I was so angry. I was living out that incident that happened when I was playing high school basketball. You know what that coach told me after the season? He came up to me and said he wanted to thank me for participating on the team and how regular I was in practice and how dedicated to helping the team. But he said, what you didn't really understand is that junior varsity is a preparation for varsity sports. And you're a junior in high school, you have only one more year, and you're not gonna be able to, to play as a senior. So I quit. But it re I, that was the resentment, you see. I was being used, taken advantage of, for his purpose. Well, our God is a forgiving God, and one of the things of God that I've learned to live with is I can confess, and he will forgive me, and he did. I haven't seen Coach Cox, if he's still alive. It's been a long time. But if I saw him today, I have no animosity, and I have no longer that subtle influence in my heart working against the things of God. One of my friends said, man is not a rational being. He's a rationalizing being. <laughs> and if you want to see how the enemy uses your thoughts to get you to think it's all about you, and that you're right and justified. Read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. These are the things not of God. So where do they come from? We have that story from the Bible. The account in Genesis 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were put in the idyllic garden with animals, plants. I bet the climate was even nice, even though he didn't say. And he gave Adam control over his environment. And he said, you can even name them, which means you can give them purpose. And he said, there only, there's only one rule that I have, Adam. You can eat the fruit of any tree in the garden, except the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
or if you eat of it, you will die. Of course, how Adam knew what dying meant at that point, it's a little hard to philosophically understand. But the rule was clear. Anything else, they had a perfect existence. For all we know, they could have lived forever in that setting. Of course, you and I wouldn't be here. But uh, so what happened? We know what happened. The serpent is the metaphor used in, in Genesis. Came and went to Eve. And he said, you know, Eve, if you eat the fruit of that tree over there, the knowledge of good and evil, you will become as God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And we know you will always choose what's good. You'll be just like him. And she thought the fruit was desirable and thought the idea of being like God was a good thing to follow and listened to that lie and disobeyed the one rule. And then she got Adam to participate too. He just strung along with her. And the rest of the story is a, is a sad tale in history of man's ability to choose between good and evil. And if you look at most of history, it hasn't been good. So how did Satan get her to do that? Couldn't have been anything unclear about the one rule. He got her by the temptation to be like God, and he got her to agree with him that that was a good thing. And I want to tell you that in case you haven't figured it out, that same temptation and mechanism is available and working today. Satan wants you to agree with him to do this particular thing that may not please God. And if you do, what result do you think he wants to have happen? That God would be glorified? No, it's usually something that you're glorified. And he wants you to agree with him. And then when it doesn't work out, as it usually doesn't, he says, see, it was your decision. You did it. You've heard the old saying, the devil made me do it. It's kind of an excuse. The truth is, the devil got you to agree and to think it was you doing it. And then when it didn't turn out good, he could blame you and you would feel guilty, which is destructive of your relationship with God who wants to bring you love and forgiveness. See how it works? The same temptation remains today. This leads me to my personal experience with fear. And I picked this one out only because it was a major barrier in my life to a trusting relationship with God. In order to understand it, you have to understand my background. I was born in a very comfortable setting. My father was a successful farmer. He got married when he was 45 for the first time. It's kind of a funny story of how he met my mother. He had, did his banking at a local bank, and Mr. Pat Monroe was the banker. And, and uh, Mr. Pat 
looked at him, and Potter was his name. He said, Potter, I think it's about time you got married. <laughs> he said, Mr. Pat, I don't think anybody would have me. He was died in the wool bachelor. Yeah. And he said, well, it's a young woman that works for me here in the bank, May Smith. I think you ought to marry her. <laughs> so he did. <laughs> Praise God, I'm here today. <laughs> Now, these were two interesting people from a psychological standpoint and otherwise. My father was a self-made man. He, went, he had an eighth grade education in a one-room schoolhouse. He was born in 1890, okay, in the northern part of Florida, beneath the eyes, skies so blue. But Along the way, he figured out that education was important, and he wanted each one of his four children that he had, and I was the last, to graduate from college. I'm not even sure how he learned that there was a college <laughs> in that day. But you know, we all did. Uh, my brother had a PhD in English literature. I ended up with a law degree and an MBA. My sister has a master's in something. You know, whether it's we, we carried out his objective. His is an interesting story. In fact, you may get to read about it someday on one of the novels that I've written that isn't published yet, but uh, where I go into my speculation as to why he became the controlling figure in my life that he did. But leave it to say that with the struggles in his life, he figured out a system that worked, which is You've got to control the environment you live in. And you can't control everything. So just pick out those things that are important to you. But within those things, they're yours, baby. Nobody better say different. And that was his life's motto. That included his farm. He was elected to the county commission, served for 15 years, only had an opponent one time that I remembered. Didn't campaign. He said, if people don't want him, they can vote for somebody else. He wasn't going to spend any time campaigning. But he was harsh, but not cruel. Demanding. We called him Daddy, which is interesting because that's an English variation of the word Abba in either Hebrew or Greek, I'm not sure about that, uh, which means a loving, endearing title. I'm convinced he insisted that we call him Daddy. <laughs> My mother, on the other hand, was a lady of mercy. And I have her life story too, and I won't go into all that. But she had one objective in life, and that was to protect herself from the rejection of others and to protect her children from the harsh reality of her husband that she loved very dearly, but she understood that he was a controlling personality. So I had Mr. Control on one side and Miss Submissive on the other, teaching me how to avoid the consequences of Mr. Control. I'll never, my mother's a little bit naive. I will never forget some of the, when the kids were in high school, they called up and pretended to be someone else and said, uh, we're from the power company and we want you to check on your refrigerator. 
She said, well, all right. And she would kind of do what you told her, you know, not wanting to reject anyone. Would you run, check and see if it's, the refrigerator's running? She said, okay. And she put the phone down and went in. Yeah, it's running. Well, I'll tell you, if it runs our way, we'll catch it and bring it back to you. <laughs> I mean, that's just the way she was. She trained me to avoid the consequences of the wrath of Khan. <laughs> My father never hit me with a stick or a belt. He didn't have to. He had a voice that was shattered glass. And when he spoke, you did what he said. So where did all this leave me? When the time we were youngsters, my brother and I, my brother was older by two years, our father was busy training us to fulfill his purposes for us in our lives. What did that mean? You will like to go to the farm. You will like to go hunting and fishing. You will not read a lot of books other than be sure you get a college education. And my brother, bless his heart, he's no longer with us, was an intellectual and had other interests. And he didn't want to be put into this mold. On the other hand, I liked it. I did all those things. And I had in mind that I would follow in his footsteps and be just like him. He was king, right? Well, my brother had to find a way to escape. So he did. At a youth revival one night, they asked for anybody who'd like to give their lives to full-time Christian service. And he and another young man raised their hands and went forward. Fateful decision. Because I think it was a lie. He ended up graduating from a very liberal seminary and lost his faith. And to the end of his life, almost the end of his life, he didn't believe there was a God because he couldn't reconcile what he had lied about and what his life had been. I had a similar struggle. When I went back after college and after service and took over the farm and was going to continue in my father's footsteps and fulfill his dreams for me, uh, for him, I decided I could not do that. This wasn't me. So I had to walk away. I can't tell you the look on his face. Oh, he never said a word. He didn't have to. I left there and went back to school, ended up, got my MBA, went to work for Boeing. And lo and behold, about 1970, the aircraft industry went in the hole and I had to figure out something to do for the rest of my life. They were getting pink slips every week. Yeah. You may remember the famous billboard that was put up with the last person to leave Seattle, turn out the lights. It was in that era. Okay. So I made the fateful decision to become a lawyer. Packed up my wife and two young kids with a U-Haul truck and we headed to Florida got my law degree. Along the way, I have to tell you this, that even though I was raised in a home that believed in Christ, and my father was faithful in that regard. He would go to men's Sunday school class, go to church every Sunday, sat on the second row on the left, and promptly fell asleep 
in every sermon. I think he probably had sleep apnea, but they didn't know what that was in those days. But I went through Methodist Youth Fellowship and camp and was a believer. Well, after all those experiences, I drifted away. And when I was in the depths of law school and the trials and tribulations that can bring, I think I finally decided that I didn't believe there was a God. But you know it didn't last long because the faith that it takes to believe all this just happened is much greater than the faith of believing in a God that you can't see, touch, or feel. So what to do? I went back to church. And through an interesting story I'll tell you another time, I was reading a book on uh, the crucifixion, and I read about what they did to Jesus. I was already a believer in the sense that I had accepted him and all that, but I read about what they did to him. And suddenly it hit me. He did that for me. And it became personal. It changed my life. I think at that moment I was born again. Finally. Well, that should have been the end of the trouble, right? Everything's going to be fine now, all the things of God. I have salvation, I have forgiveness, I have peace, joy. Something was missing. Along the way, I was, in fact, I was in law school when my father died. And after my conversion experience in about 1975, we were attending a local Methodist church. My great-great-grandfather was the first Methodist minister in Florida in 1820. I was sitting there in church. We had communion every Sunday, every once a month, whether you needed it or not. And I was sitting there meditating on the sins in my life of that week that I needed to take to the altar. We went down front and with the elements and everything. And suddenly it hit me that I had never forgiven my father for making me afraid. I broke out crying. I couldn't help it. One of the pastors came over and thought something was wrong and something was right. I was able to forgive my father. I could call him daddy and mean it. That should have changed everything, right? End of story, no more fear, no more concern. The next 10 years was a different story. This fear, how it gets there and dwells in your soul and unconscious mind and all of that, I'm not sure. But it was there waiting to devour me. It got so bad that if I had to make a phone call to opposing counsel about something unpleasant, which in my line of work happens about every other day, or go to court and make an argument on a motion, and you lose half of them, you know, I became so overwhelmed with fear that I was paralyzed from action. I would procrastinate. I was the world's worst procrastinator of avoiding rejection. I would just avoid making the phone call. I remember at King County in, the, in those days before we had assigned judges, 
we would go down to the big courtroom on the ninth floor and they would have maybe uh, 10 or 11 cases that they didn't have enough judges and courtrooms for because they're counting on them settling and there's always a shortage of money with government, you know. And I remember you'd be there with all your witnesses and exhibits ready to go and then you find out, oh, I'm on the standby list. And I remember sometimes praying that we wouldn't have to go because it was this fear. It was irrational. I was prepared. Once I got into the arena, it's like playing football. They tell me once you get hit the first time, then it's okay, you can play. But each time I had to go through that same process. And I struggled with this for years. Then one day, one fateful day, I do a lot of reading, and I happened to be reading a little book that my mother had given to my brother, and he didn't want it for the reasons I gave. The title is Christian Life in the Unconscious, written by Dr. Ernest White, a Christian psychologist. And it talks about conversion, sin, and he focused on the unconscious things that dwell up in your experience. My mother used to complain about that. She, she said, John, I get these words that come into my mind. I want to, I don't know where they're coming from. And I was reading in the chapter on unconscious sin, sin, evil, and guilt. And something happened to me. I had a realization or a revelation that fear was sin. I had never thought of that before. My first reaction was in the natural. How could that be? I'm afraid of what somebody else might do to me. How is that a sin of mine? Well, a moment's thought will tell you that the reason it's a sin is because who are you trusting in in that circumstance? You're trusting in you, right? And you know he's going to fail. So you're afraid. So I thought, well, what's God's remedy for sin then? Let's, I'll take it as a given that fear is sin. What's God's remedy for sin? First John 1 John 1.9 says, you confess your sin. He's faithful and just. He will forgive your sin and will continuously cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So I decided to give it a test. So the next time I was confronted with one of these situations, which brought this irrational, emotional fear in me, which I didn't have long to wait. I came up with a, a little prayer that I used. And I, I want to mention to you that, like Job in the Old Testament wrote at the end of his experience, and I'm paraphrasing to modern English, God is not a vending machine. It's not a matter of formulas or incantations or words that you say. But if he's revealed to you as he did to me, the prayer is important. And here's the prayer that I wrote. Lord, I confess to you right now that I'm afraid to do whatever it was. 
I believe in faith of your word that you forgive me. I realize that I must act in this trust right now and do this very thing I'm afraid of doing. I confess also that my emotions still cause me to feel the consequences of fear. But your promises are true and you will get me through it. The consequences may be unpleasant and the outcome may be undesirable, but you will get me through it. And the important thing to remember and the greatest lesson that I learned is the action part. It's fine to understand it, but unless you're willing to go do the very thing right then, nothing much is going to change. I've kept this little book. It's getting a little ragged now. It's what I call one of the monuments of my memories. And I've gone back to it a number of times to that chapter. There's not a word about that in it. Not a word. Not even close. It wasn't the words. It was God's spirit acting on my spirit that revealed to me what I must do. Now let me tell you what happened as a consequence of this decision. I began to faithfully apply this remedy. And you know I learned some three very important lessons. First, most of the time the things you're emotionally afraid of don't happen. It's false alarm most of the time. It doesn't make them feel different. Second thing, even if it's an unpleasant result, you get through it. And the third thing is our economical Lord, who just seldom does things for one purpose only. It wasn't limited to the fear as sin. As I began to take other areas of my life, and I won't go into those, where something about my thinking, my patterns, my habits, or whatever, was interfering with having a trusting relationship with him, and apply this same formula to it, he began to transform my mind. It wasn't immediate, but within two or three months, the cloud of fear that it hover over me like the cloud over Linus and Peanuts? Lifted. Gone. I can't tell you that I was never afraid again. That would be unrealistic and dishonest. But it is never a barrier. At any time it rears its ugly head, I can tell Satan Put the next screen up. <laughs> Request denied. Because you know where that's coming from. It's not coming from God, that return thing. And it's kind of an interesting uh, tool when you come out and say that. In <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, I had a thought I was tempted, and I was telling Satan to go. God's given me the power over him to bind him. 
And this is my tool to do it. Okay. Um, John chapter 17, verse 22 says, I have given them the glory and honor which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. The good news is when you begin to put your trust in him by acting in the very thing or something close to it that's causing you the grief and you learn and observe and see the change that takes place in your life, you can learn this valuable lesson your mind is being transformed. I must say this after hearing the testimony of Victoria. Is it Victoria? And, and my friend Rich Bixby helped me with this too in a way because he's a computer guy. Uh, I thought about how God does miracles. You know, physical miracles. I'm talking about where there's no reason those that knee should have been saved, right? That those tendons would grow back, that new stuff appears. And I got to thinking, I read a lot about science and different things. Uh, I have this wonderful book called uh, Modern Physics and Ancient Faith by Dr. Stephen Barr, if any of you would like to read it. But anyway, the, the latest thinking in science on uh, a general theory that will cover everything, you know, gravity and all the rest, they've never been able to put it all together is string theory or M theory. And the theory is that, as you know, the law of conservation of matter is matter is neither created nor destroyed. It just changes form. For years they couldn't figure out whether light, a light ray was a particle or a beam. And they did an experiment to identify the particles and all they could get was a beam, a wave did another experiment to try to identify the wave and all it would get is a particle. Finally they concluded it's both. Anyway, if mass is neither created nor destroyed, it just changes form by the strings of energy that make up matter. It, it occurred to me that if you know the code, you can predict the result. Computer guys know that, right? Is that's where Rich helped. Zeros, uh, ones, and digits. Ones and no digits. They call it zero, but Rich explained that to me. And if you 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 can use this language to make a computer do anything, it does. So what if God knows the code by which material things are formed? Miracles? No problem. Anyway, I came up with an acronym that I'm going to leave with you as a reminder in case you need it, that God is with you always. <clears throat> it's kind of a funny one, but if you kind of have the next screen, get some scalp. God is the source of my strength, comfort, and provision. I have uh, somebody here a few weeks ago talked about uh, giving money to people who are begging and so forth, 
Remember that sermon? So I came up with one of my own. It says, get some scout. God is the source of my strength, comfort, and provision. And you says, see inside. And I wrote this. No matter what is the cause of your present undesirable condition, the solution has to begin with the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not yet accept that, but he willingly died to see, set you free. But first of all, you have to accept that you can't fix it yourself. He said, ask and it shall be given unto you. Just ask with a genuine heart and watch to see what he will do through you in your circumstances thereafter. Take this gift as a token from me that God loves you. But remember that you have to turn to him and begin your personal search with him for a solution by placing your reliance on him henceforth as the source of your strength, comfort, and provision. And I include a, a Subway gift card. And if you want to, you could add money. So I want to conclude with this. This story of what happened to me and the victory God gave me over fear was unique to me in a sense because it was my revelation. You may be struggling with something else and probably are that keeps you from having the things of God. And no matter what the enemy does, if you identify what that thing is, and as it happens in the circumstances of your life, you stop and confess that your reluctance to do or not do, whatever that is right then, is a sin. And ask God to forgive you for it. And he's faithful and just and will forgive your sin and continuously cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that if you will put it into action, test him, if you will, watch and see what he will do with this intangible mind we have. I think that's his message. So I'll close with that, and could we pray? Dear Lord, I thank you that uh, you've allowed me to come here today and share my testimony and some truths that you've given me in the area of fear. There may be some here who haven't gotten to the point yet of even understanding that they must accept you on faith. And if they reach that decision today, O oh Lord, they can in their own self in their own thoughts better yet openly but quietly confess that they've been following self and not you and they you are faithful and will forgive them for that and if they want to magnify the benefit of that tell somebody what you just did and I thank you for it in your precious name.